welcome to the ianabernethy.com podcast. In this episode, Thinking Like a Criminal. Hello everyone, I'm Ian Abernethy and as you've just heard, this month we're discussing Thinking Like a Criminal. So we're looking at the criminal's objectives and how they best achieve those objectives. Now dealing with criminals is different from fighting fighters. So I think this is largely misunderstood and it's quite important, I think. Um, of course, there's obviously some crossover between self-protection and fighting when it comes to the physical side of things. Uh, and we've, we've discussed that crossover in previous podcasts. Uh, but in this month, I just want to look at the differences, not the commonality, because there are some stark differences. And I think we need to understand those um, in order to best prepare ourselves for self-protection scenarios. So I hope you find that interesting. Of course, we're nearing the end of 2015. And 2016 will mean the podcasts have been running for a full 10 years. So that's a, a decade of digital waffle. <laughs> um, so, uh, well, people seem to like them. You know, you're listening, so that's all that matters, I guess. So uh, what I'd like to do, um, since we have done a decade of them, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mark that in a way I think you'll like. But I don't want to tell you what that is yet. Um, but to help me do it, I need to know what the listeners' top 10 favourite podcasts have been over the last uh, 10 years. So, I would like it if you could drop me an email at ian at ianabernethy.com. So that's I-A-I-N at I-A-I-N-A-B-E-R-N-E-T-H-Y dot com. Ian at ianabernethy.com. If you can put podcast in the subject and then write down, you know, 1 through 10 if you've got a top 10. If you haven't got a top 10, send me a your top three your top four your favorite one doesn't really matter and in the email if you just keep it just to the the list of your top 10 if there's any other chatty things you want to discuss with me send those in separate emails please and then just help me administrate it all at this end and then over the next few weeks when i've got an idea of what the top 10 favorite podcasts are i'll be in a position to start work on this secret thing <laughs> that I think you'll like. Okay, so um, so yeah, if you could do that for me, I'd really appreciate it. Uh, also, uh, what I'd like to do, as we are nearing the end of the year, is just uh, thank everybody for their support in 2015. This year has been great. I've uh, been travelling a lot. Uh, I, it's been fantastic. Seminars have been brilliant. Loads of really enthusiastic people. Um, all the seminars have been well organised. I'm so grateful to those who've organised them. Uh, those who've opened their homes to me on the travel. I'm, I'm lucky. I've got friends all over the globe. You know that we all share this passion for you know the martial art of, of karate, and I'm, I'm so grateful to you all for. Uh, um, making me part of your martial arts really because it, it again I'd, I'd really do enjoy the traveling I, I look i look forward to the break like now i'm on the christmas break so i think oh it'll be great you know a couple of weeks and i haven't got to travel and then it always lasts a few days then the wanderlust kicks in <laughs> um, and i'm like that now i can't wait to get back out on the road again so 2016 middle of january i'm back out so i'll see you all again soon but i just want to thank you for all your support in in 2015 it's been it's been a lot of fun Okay, I think that's enough from this introduction. So, uh, yeah, let's let's discuss thinking like a criminal. One of the most insidious problems I see when it comes to modern self-protection 
is a failure to understand just what we are protecting ourselves against. If we don't understand the question, then there's no way we can give an adequate answer. I'll go further and say that many are willingly choosing to misunderstand the problem because they are so heavily invested in an inappropriate solution. In chapter 3 of the classic text The Art of War by Sun Tzu, he said, If you know your enemy and you know yourself, you will not know defeat in a hundred battles. If you do not know the enemy but know yourself, you will win one and lose one. If you do not know your enemy and do not know yourself, there is grave danger in every single battle. From a self-protection perspective, our enemy is the violent criminal. It is the violent criminal that we need to understand if we are to be able to keep ourselves safe from them. We need to understand their motivations and their methods if we are going to be best placed to deal with them. Now I would say that many martial artists fail here. They fixate on their own martial art to such a degree that they assume their enemy will behave like another martial artist. Now sometimes this is done through ignorance and other times it's done through arrogance. Ignorance is when the martial artist fails to appreciate the fact that there are other kinds of violence. They go to the gym and the dojo, fight their own kind and develop a skill set and way of acting and thinking that works really well in that context. Because they have only ex experience of the gym and dojo environment, they incorrectly assume that the violence they have experienced there is the only kind of violence there is. They fail to see that different contexts require differing solutions, because they are unaware that differing contexts exist. Tell them that elements of what they do won't work in other contexts and they'll deny the truth of that because they'll go, well, I know this works, it worked in the dojo last night. I mean, arrogance is when they believe that what they do is superior to everything else out there. If they can deal with their own kind, then all lesser forms of violence will be a trifling matter for their superior skills. I mean, this is very faulty logic, but I've seen a lot of that in the martial arts media recently. There's a myth that if you can deal with the highly trained fighter, then your common street criminal stands no chance. I mean, we'll break this down throughout the podcast, but the key failure here is the incorrect assumption that the criminal will fight you. They won't. They're not going to play your game. They're going to play theirs. So let's start breaking down how a criminal will think and act. And as we do so, we can contrast this to the martial artist and the trained fighter. Um, how they'll think and act. We can also discuss the right way to deal with criminals. So let's start by defining what a criminal is. I mean, my dictionary defines a criminal as a person who has committed a crime or who has been proved to be guilty of a crime by a court. A crime is also defined as an action or a mission which constitutes an offence and is punishable by law. So for our purposes, we could therefore accurately say that a criminal is a person who has committed an action which is punishable by law. Now, the criminal may not think of themselves as a criminal, but if their actions are punishable by law, then that's what they are. So here's our first big difference. Training to outfight a fellow martial artist stroke martial athlete in an agreed format is totally legal. A trained fighter's actions are not punishable by law because the activity is legal and consented to by all parties. The criminal's actions, by definition, are illegal. They are seeking to sexually assault, injure and steal from people who do not consent to their actions. They are also aware, generally speaking, that their actions can be punishable under the law of the land. It should be obvious that there is a big difference here already. The trained fighter will do all that he does out in the open. The criminal will be much more clandestine before, during and after. Now, 
you know, think like a criminal. If you were a criminal, would you warn your potential victim? Would you square off in front of them with your guard up? You know, of course you wouldn't. That's what a fighter does when they're preparing to fight. The criminal does not want you to be ready. They want to catch you unaware. Now, I recall seeing a, a very well-known and undoubtedly superb fighter um, showing self-defense, in quotes, techniques in one of the martial arts magazines. Now, all of these alleged self-defense techniques started with him and his attacker facing each other from 10 feet away with their guards up. Now, this is fighting pretending to be self-defense based on the erroneous assumption that criminals act like fighters. The criminal is acting illegally and they want to get what they need with the minimum of fuss and in a way that minimises the chances of them being successfully prosecuted. Agreeing to fight you for it is not in the criminal's best interests. They will attack without warning and they'll seek to distract you. Um, they'll also work in teams to this end because that's a smart way to achieve their objectives. Now, criminals aren't stupid, you know, sometimes you know, we're highly trained martial artists and they're just dumb criminals. You know, the fact is they're very good at what they do, they're professionals at what they do. Uh, very experienced at what they do too. So, the myth that if you can deal with a trained fighter, then you can deal with criminals falls apart right here. If you've not studied or understood the methods of criminals, you'll be an easy target. It's largely irrelevant how good a fighter you are because the criminal will not be fighting you. They'll look for a lack of awareness or they'll cause you to be distracted. And then they'll attack violently and explosively. You know, they'll attack you in numbers and using weapons in order to achieve their objective as efficiently as possible. If you can think like a criminal, you'll understand this and then realise that any self-defence solution based on out-in-the-open fighting skills is flawed. The most efficient way to counter the actions of the criminal is to be aware of their actions so they can't create the opportunity to attack. Remember they need both your awareness to be elsewhere and for the chances of prosecution for their illegal actions to be minimised. Depending upon their motivation, one way that the criminal can minimise their chances of prosecution is to ensure that you're on the wrong side of the law too. If the criminal has decided they want the thrill of violence, then they may try to provoke you into aggressive behaviour. So you're consenting to the fight through your own lack of self-control. If you take the bait, they can then attack you, and should the law get involved, they can claim it was you who was the aggressor. You know, and witnesses will back this up. They'll say that they saw you both in trading insults and aggressively posturing, and this will undermine your legal defence and help that of the criminal. In professional fighting, we often see trash talk exchanged in the run-up to big fights, you know, and I get this because it helps give the fight a narrative which can then be sold to the media and the ticket-buying public. As entertainment and advertising, promotion, it works well, I've no problem with it. However, if you were to see that out of context and repeat such behaviour in you know, the everyday life, you know, outside of the sporting environment, the criminal can use that to their advantage. You need to be able to remain calm in the face of provocation, and you need to be able to walk away. And you need to be good at those things, so to be good at them, you need to practice it. You need to run scenarios where you de-escalate and disengage. You know, that's of vital importance. And, of course, fighting training doesn't cover that. And we also need to remember that the old saying, if all you have is a hammer, then every problem looks like a nail, you know, that's got great relevance here. If all you have in your toolkit are fighting skills, then you've no option but to approach self-protection like a fight. It's all you know how to do. If you're preparing to fight fighters, the criminal will march straight through the huge holes that the lack of awareness and avoidance training has left. I mean, the aim of the criminal is to harm you for their own pleasure or gain. They don't want to fight you. And you shouldn't want to fight them either. 
But if you're a fighter, that's all you know how to do. It's not your aim to win the fight, but to ensure that you're not harmed, or that whatever harm you do suffer is minimised. You know, this is why escaping is what we need to have at the forefront of our minds. If you've always fought to win, then you'll do what you've always done. You know, you won't seek escape, despite the fact that escaping is both tactically and legally your best option. Habits will kick in and you'll fight to win, when you should be fighting to flee. If you don't practice escaping, then you won't be good at it. So again, a fighting solution to the actions of criminals is fundamentally flawed, because it does not seek to promote the most effective options. Another huge consideration is the number of enemies. You know, I'm sick of hearing people say that we should be practicing things that will work against a trained fighter. Built into that statement is the dangerous assumption that there will always be one person facing you in a square go. A trained fighter. The reality is that there could well be multiple criminals. As already discussed, if we know our enemy, and if we can think like a criminal, we will know that the smart thing for them to do is work in teams. It's easy for them to do that. If you take your fighting solution into self-protection, you'll be in big trouble because you will have conditioned yourself to utilise one-on-one tactics. This will mean that all your attention will be focused onto one of the criminals, such that the others can attack you at no risk to themselves. Now, to give an example, let's say you've been working on your clinch in your knees. So in the gym, you're landing knees really well and you're winning fights with them. You know your knees work and you're confident that if you can take out some of the best guys in the gym with your knees, then the untrained criminal element will be no trouble for you to deal with. You then happen to find yourself in the wrong place at the wrong time. There are a few bad guys in front of you, one of whom has demanded you hand over your money and valuables. I mean, you refuse because you're a badass and a fight begins. You know, the, you clinch the lead guy and you start blasting those knees and they're working great. But the other members of the gang aren't getting hit by your knees. And your hands are busy holding the guy you are kneeing. The other members of the gang simply pull their knives and start stabbing you until you drop. Now you remain a better fighter than every single one of them. But they are better criminals. And you're in their environment and you don't understand them. Had you understood them, you would have understood the need to keep mobile, avoid clinching, creating space. As opposed to closing it down, etc. You know, the tactics that you would need for dealing with multiple assailants. One-on-one tactics lead to disaster in environments where there are more than one person. If that's all you practice, then you're in big trouble. Now would seem to be an opportune time to discuss the nature of violence a criminal will use. Because for them, violence is a tool to get other things, even if all they want is the satisfaction of having inflicted violence onto another person. For the fighter, they want to be a good fighter. They want to be able to prove to others and themselves that they have solid fighting skills. The criminal does not care how skilled his violence is. He only cares about how effective it is. The criminal best achieves their objective by attacking explosively and with a high rate of fire. The skill level of each individual technique is largely an irrelevance. They'll not square off, move around at a distance, or test your reactions, etc. There will be no skilled interchange, because seeking such an interchange is not in the criminal's best interests. If you were to seek to apply a game of skill in the face of a savage criminal onslaught, you'll be overwhelmed. They don't want to play a game of skill with you. As an analogy, it's like you sitting down to play chess, and you find that the opposing player is not seeking checkmate, but is instead defined their win by how many times they can hit you over the head with the board. You can try and play the game of chess all you want, but he's playing a different game. We also need to accept that what fighters do to defeat other fighters is largely irrelevant to the criminal. To give some examples, one thing that skilled fighters do is use their opponent's training to their advantage. 
They will do certain things in the anticipation that the opponent will react in certain ways. All of that is irrelevant when facing a criminal because he is acting as a criminal, not a fighter. When fighting a trained fighter, there can be advantage to doing something unexpected or that your opponent's not aware of. In other words, flashy can work very well because the opponent has seen all the simple stuff and knows how to counter it. This is not true when facing a criminal where the intense and explosive nature of the violence that they're going to use, you know, that favours extreme simplicity. Flashy is both unnecessary and dangerous. Trained fighters often don't try certain things when facing one of their own kind because they know it has little chance of success. This is due in large part to the opponent's familiarity with all those methods and the fact that the counters will have been drilled to death. Just because something won't work against a trained opponent doesn't mean that it won't be effective against a criminal. There is a danger that the martial artist mistakenly sees criminals as one of their own and hence end up taking less effective indirect routes when simpler things may have worked much better. Now, as an example, you know, you know, people are right to say that biting and eye gouges will not lead to victory against a skilled BGJ exponent. You know, they'll just get annoyed and they'll break a few more joints before choking you out, right? However, biting and eye gouges would be a more effective way for a 15-year-old potential victim of sexual assault to create space than the kind of skill reversal you may use in BJJ competitions. These things are simpler, they don't take a lot of practice to get good at, and the size of the enemy has no bearing on how well a bite or a gouge will work. And it's highly unlikely that the potential rapist will be a BJJ black belt. Now, if you just thought, but what if they are? I'll come to that later. Simple works very well when facing criminal violence, but that's not always the case when fighting a martial artist with the same skill set as yourself. There's also an inferred hierarchy when people say things like Method X won't work well against a trained opponent, or it may work against someone who does not know the method, but it would not work against trained people. Inherent in such statements is the false belief that trained fighters are a step above criminals. The reality is that they are two entirely different types of enemy working in entirely different environments. Having the ability to deal with one does not give you the ability to deal with the other. If escape is not immediately possible, then the best way to deal with the criminal onslaught is your own aggressive onslaught. When fighters fight, there's often some kind of interchange. When criminals attack, they want one-way traffic, where they are the hammer and you are the anvil, and you need to reverse that. They'll not let up, they'll not move back, they'll not give you space and prepare for the next exchange, as we see all the time in consensual fighting. You can't cover up and ride it out. The criminal will keep on going because they don't want it to degenerate into a fight. You need to be able to turn the tide. Consensual violence, fighting, and non-consensual violence, crime, have very different dynamics. You need to understand this if you're going to be effectively prepared. So let's take an example. The proposed need to keep your guard up is a very common failing in this regard. Guards are something used in fighting as passive protection as combatants move in and out of range. When it comes to criminal violence, the hands should not be held in a guard because if you do, they're effectively inactive. You'll already be close because that's the nature of the violence. You know, you're not moving in and out, you're in. And so hence you should have both arms active in some way. They should be striking, datum setting, pushing, clearing limbs. You know, they shouldn't be held passively in a guard. This is not an environment of intermittent skilled exchanges, but instead of explosive, relentless brutality. 
And you need to respond in kind because that's the nature of the environment. Again, the criminal is not seeking a fight and neither should you. This is where the importance of preemption needs to be stated. If you believe a situation is about to get physical, and but you're still in the dialogue stages, then striking first and using the resulting distraction and disorientation to facilitate escape is the way to go. And we've talked about this at length in previous podcasts, so I'll not repeat myself here. But once again, though, you can see we're not fighting. You know, preemption and running is, is not fighting. If you understand the criminal, you will also understand that they are not going to fight. You can't make them fight i.e. play your game instead of theirs, and even if you could, it would not be in your best interest to do so. I mean, this is a potentially huge subject, and we obviously can't look at all branches of this in this podcast. However, I hope that what we've discussed so far should make clear that when we understand the criminal's motivations and methods, i.e. we can think like a criminal, then we can see that they are different from a fighter's methods and motivations. And hence approaching criminal violence like a fight is trying to reinvent reality. It's not how things work, and it's highly inefficient to do that. I mean, so far we've looked at criminal violence versus fighting, because um, that's where I see the most common misunderstandings. But it would be fair to say that there are also some misunderstandings around criminal violence and military violence. It's not uncommon to see military combat systems, both legitimate and hyped, presented as ultimate self-defense systems. Again, this is simply another example of people failing to understand their enemy and the environment in which they operate. The big failing of military systems, as I see it, is a total failure to realise that in civilian self-protection, all actions have to be legal. I've lost count of the number of demonstrations I've seen that end with the bad guy getting repeatedly stamped on, or stabbed with their own knife, or shot with their own gun, and so on. I mean, leaving aside the practicality of such disarms, the idea of shooting a now unarmed person when you have the space and they are no longer an immediate threat is clearly vengeance. And we don't have a legal right to enact vengeance. We have a legal right to protect ourselves. When facing criminal violence, you're not in a war zone and hence you can't act as if you are. This is especially important, I think, for those who market these systems. The bottom line is that criminals are criminals and you're a civilian, not an active soldier. And hence, all good self-protection training needs to be based on those vital facts. You can't superimpose military methods and thinking into environments that they're not intended for. Uh, once again, know your enemy. Uh, what I'd now like to do is look at some of the more common failings when it comes to misrepresenting criminal violence as fighting, via a small number of the myths and false arguments that we see generated to justify this failing. So here we go, okay? Myth 1. What if he's a trained fighter? Now, well, this comes up a lot, and in my experience, this one is most often used when someone wants to reassert that their pre-existing fighting skill set is the ultimate solution to all problems. It's an attempt to reinvent criminal violence in their own image. I mean, of course, he could be a trained fighter, but what are the odds he's trained in the same system as you? And, and, and if he was, and if he's a smart criminal, then he will know not to fight you, but to use unexpected violence against you. He's not going to spar with you just because that would suit you. As discussed throughout this podcast, he's going to use the most effective ways to achieve his goals. So, I mean, putting that to one side, all that's left is a situation where the trained fighter wants to fight you, which is highly unlikely, I mean, outside of the gym. But the solution there is real simple. Just don't fight him. De-escalate or escape. Don't get drawn into a consensual street fight because that's illegal and it's stupid. If you can't de-escalate or escape, and again, don't fight him, preempt and then escape. 
And if you can't do that, then again, don't fight. Explode with all you have in order to incapacitate. Because the violence is non-consensual, because you're not agreeing to the fight, then it will have the associated dynamic as you seek your safety. Now, to indulge just for a moment longer, we all know that it takes a lot of time and effort to get good at martial arts. I mean, criminals don't have to bother with that. They use the brains, they use numbers, they use weapons, and they get the job done much more easily. Now, so if it's a remote possibility that the criminal is trained in the same system as you, then it's even more a remote possibility that they're highly trained. I mean, there simply aren't that many highly talented martial artists out there, and the vast majority of them that are are busy in the gym or dojo. They're not out picking fights in the street. I mean, the bottom line is there's no crime wave consisting of highly trained martial artists roaming the streets looking to force unsuspecting members of the public to spar with them. I mean, you might as well worry about getting abducted by Sasquatch. You know, it's, just, it's not going to happen. If you want to be able to outfight good fighters, then, yeah, great, you know, train for that and go to places where good fighters fight. It's not something you realistically need to do for self-protection purposes, though. Myth 2. The UFC is really popular these days, and a lot of people train in MMA, therefore we need to be prepared for that. I mean, this is related to the last one. I'm a martial artist, and so I spend a lot of my time with martial artists. It therefore seems to me as if the world is full of martial artists, you know, they're everywhere I go. I mean, I'm smart enough to realise that that's not what everyone else experiences, though. Um, there are martial artists everywhere I go, because I only go where martial artists are. You know, <laughs> you know my friends, for their world isn't full of martial artists, my family's world isn't full of martial artists. You know, so, but if you are a martial artist, it may seem as if trained people are everywhere. But you need to be a little bit more objective in questioning why that is. I think all the points made in the last myth apply here too, but to quickly lay this one to rest, you only need to look at crime statistics. There's no modern epidemic of criminals using ankle locks and triangle chokes. I mean, it's just not happening. The crime statistics show us what the problem is, and we should train to address the problem in the most efficient way. There's no wisdom in preparing for an almost unheard of exception. As I say, there's no crime epidemic consisting of arm bars and ankle locks. To train for that is to misunderstand the problem. Criminals are acting as they always have. For the self-protection side of what we do, we should train for the problem as it really is. Not pretend the problem is something else to justify the view that our fighting skills reign supreme. To be clear, you know, I mean, I'd like learning fighting skills. I like learning how to most effectively deal with the fighting skills of others. Such skills have their own inherent value. We don't need to concoct some false link to criminal violence to give them value. And, you know, and in doing so, we make ourselves less able to deal with criminal violence. Okay, myth three. If I can get something to work against a trained fighter, it will work against anyone. Now, now, I've heard this a lot recently, and we've touched on it a few times in this podcast. This statement fails to grasp the differing natures of consensual violence and criminal violence. It tries to assert that criminal violence is like lower league fighting. And if you can make it in the big leagues of fighting trained people, then you will have no issue with criminal violence. As discussed, there are skills you need for criminal violence that are irrelevant for fighting i.e. de-escalation skills, awareness skills, knowledge of the law, sound personal security habits, and so on. There are also skills you need for fighting that you don't need for criminal violence, i.e. provoking trained responses, closing the gap, back and forth footwork, and so on. The two types of violence also have differing objectives, and hence make use of differing tactics. 
And because of that as well, the choice of preferred techniques also varies. It's possible to be a good fighter, but clueless about the best way to deal with criminal violence, and vice versa. The bottom line, as we've said many times, is that the smart criminal does not want to fight you. And that alone renders a lot of the fighting skill set irrelevant. Okay, myth four. Are you saying that, insert name of top fighter here, can't protect themselves? Now this is another favourite of those who would impose a one-size-fits-all fighting solution onto all kinds of violence. I mean, this fails for a couple of very important reasons. Firstly, top fighters can do inappropriate things so well that they can still work. But just because they can make the inappropriate work does not make it suddenly appropriate. If they can do that, it just affirms them as the exception to the rule. The other key thing is that the vast majority of people are not top fighters. They are not the ones we need to worry about. We need solutions that the rank and file stand a chance of making work. We should train specifically for the results we want. We should not be training for something else and hope that the byproduct of that training gives us what we need and then try to justify this by pointing to the exceptions to the rule who are way more technically and physically capable than we are. That makes no sense at all. It also needs to be remembered that even top fighters can be taken out by criminals. You know, as, as I'm you know, writing this, you know, I, I can think of two top boxers who have been stabbed, one fatally and one hospitalised. Um, and, and the reason was they'd been drinking, so their awareness was compromised. In the case of the fatality, the boxer had irritated some known violent criminals and had continued to do so. Didn't spot the situation escalating. I mean, the people who attacked them didn't put up their fists and fight. They struck them with weapons and without warning. They used surprise and brutality, not highly honed fighting skills. I mean, there's no doubt who the better fighters were, but the criminals didn't want to fight. When we say that fighting skills are not a good solution to criminal violence, that's a statement of fact. It's not an insult to fighters. And those who think it is are falling into the trap of the false hierarchy of fighting and criminal violence that we've mentioned a couple of times in this podcast. You know, the different things. You know, so let's you know, give you an, al- an analogy, right? So the current world land speed record is held by the British driver Andy Green, who managed uh, 763 miles an hour. Now the skill required to drive at that speed where every tiny little bump or motion on the steering wheel can have huge effects. I mean, that skill is phenomenal to drive at that speed. There can be no doubt that Andy Green is an incredibly highly skilled driver. However, his skill to drive in straight lines at such speed has little relevance to his ability to drive safely on a public road. The different sets of skills. It would obviously be very dubious logic to state something along the lines of, well, Andy Green's undoubtedly a good driver, so if I practice driving like he does in the desert when attempting land speed records, I'm sure to be a good driver on public roads. <laughs> when people say they can outfight trained fighters, therefore they are good to go for self-defence, they're doing something very similar. The skills needed by the elite when pursuing the elite are not the same skills needed by the rank and file when pursuing safety in normal life. Okay, myth five, right? So in combat sports, everything is tested so we know it works. Indeed you do. You know it works in combat sports. That does not mean it's an automatic fit for other contexts. Live testing is very important though, both for fighters and self-protection practitioners, but it's vital that the test is a true one. If you want to test self-protection skills, you need live drills that involve multiple enemies, the option to escape, the need to protect others, 
that includes weapons, uh, the chance to de-escalate, uh, being attacked without warning and so on. And I do all of that in my dojo and what you find is one-on-one -on -one fighting skills don't cut it. Indeed, they can be counterproductive at times. If you want to test how something will fare in a given environment, the test needs to mirror that environment. As I've said you know, many times before, the question of will this work is meaningless without the qualifying question of works for what? What can work well in one environment can be disastrous in another. I mean, to reiterate, there's nothing wrong with sparring in a fighting way. You know, we do that too. But it needs to be understood you are developing and testing fighting skills when you do that. If you want self-protection skills, you need live drills that accurately reflect the objective and nature of that kind of violence. At the beginning of this podcast, I quoted the famous line from Sun Tzu. If you know your enemy and know yourself, you will not know defeat in a hundred battles. If you do not know your enemy but know yourself, you will win one and lose one. If you do not know your enemy and you do not know yourself, there is great danger in every single battle. So when we relate this to self-protection, we need to know the criminal, because they are the enemy in that environment. If we superimpose another enemy in there, i.e. the trained fighter or the fellow martial artist, then we still don't know the enemy we are actually facing. Things get worse when we fail to understand the true nature of our skill set. If we don't understand that fighting skills are not self-protection skills, then we don't know ourselves either. As Sun Tzu states, that means there is grave danger in every single battle, not because we are unskilled, but because we don't understand our enemy and we don't understand our own skills. To be truly prepared for self-protection, we need to be able to think like a criminal. We need to understand our enemy. We need to know that they are, by definition, engaged in action that is unlawful. We need to know that they don't want to fight, but want to use violence as a tool to achieve their illegal aims. We need to know that they won't operate out in the open, but will use deception and seek to exploit any lack of awareness. We need to understand that it's not in their interest to fight. And it is through the use of surprise, numbers, weapons, etc. that they most efficiently achieve their goals, and so on. If we fail to get all of that, and try to make them play the fighting game, because that's the game we know how to play, then we're going to be in big trouble. They will stick with their plan, because it's a plan that works very well for them. And we need to be able to understand that plan if we're going to be able to neutralise it. While this podcast can't cover everything, and there's much left unexplored, I hope that this has at least given those new to this important distinction enough information to effectively frame the question and you know, to prompt further study. And for those well-versed in this way of thinking, I hope there's some talking points you can use to explore these issues when conversing with students and colleagues. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, as we said in the introduction, you know, there is crossover between the physical side of self-protection and fighting. So if you're in good shape, if you've got good technique, if you can deal with pressure, if you can be aggressive, you know, th these are all things that, that are common to both. And, it, you know, if you've got those set of skills, it will help you with both. Um, but we can't look at the commonalities and then extend that to say that they're the same. So, and there is difference, there's a big difference between fighting and self-protection. Are we fighting fighters or are we keeping ourselves safe from criminals? Because the changing objective changes things. You know, do we want to win the fight or do we want to be safe? They're different. 
and as we've discussed in this podcast, another big difference is the nature of the enemy. We're not fighting fighters, you know, when it comes to self-defense. What we're doing is we're keeping ourselves safe from criminals, so we need to think about how they operate and which tools are most effective for us to, to deal with them. And, you know, squaring off and putting your guard up, that, that's, that's not the way. So, um, so anyway, I hope you, you found that um, of, of interest. Uh, if you could do me a little favour as well, remember, if you could uh, kindly send me your top ten podcasts, or your top three, your top four, your favourite, like we mentioned in the introduction, if you can email me those to ian at ianabernethy.com, that will help me with the, the secret thing <laughs> that I'm, uh, I'm planning for next, uh, next year. And, uh, and so that's it. That's it for 2015. Uh, I'll be back in the new year with a, um, a new podcast. So until we speak again, um, have a great Christmas or whatever it is you celebrate at this time of year. Uh, and um, have a happy new year. Okay, I'll speak to you soon. Bye.